welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. In an unusual turn, Johnson & Johnson will have to face a second jury in a California tell case because the first jury couldn't agree whether a dying woman was eligible for punitive damages. The jury did find that the company's talc products caused her cancer and awarded her $12 million. Joining me is Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. Peter, tell us about the jury's findings as to damages against J&J, Colgate-Palmolive, and Avon. Well, the, the starting point is that it, they found that the talcum powder did, in fact, cause the cancer. So the award of the $12 million was for the, the damages and the harm that was caused to her. The, the question now is whether this second jury will give um, punitive damages or what California calls exemplary damages. And that, that's going to require a different standard that the plaintiff has to show by uh, clear and convincing evidence that the defendant is guilty of what the statute says is oppression, fraud, or malice. And so that's a higher standard to pri- try to get punitive damages in this type of case. So in the punitive damages portion of the first trial, the jurors did not find evidence that Colgate acted with malice, but they were deadlocked on whether J&J did. So the child judge is requiring a new trial, sort of a mini trial, to consider only the punitive damages against J&J. How unusual is that? Well, certainly it's not uh, typical. Usually you have one jury deciding um, both the the award of actual damages, the harm to the plaintiff, and then punitive damages. For example, last month in New York, a jury awarded $300 million against Johnson & Johnson in punitive damages, and that was the same jury. So it's certainly not typical, but it is a way for a judge to bring together a new group of jurors and then to say, all right, you guys figure out whether there should be the award of any punitive damages. And for punitive damages, the California statute, which goes back to 1872, um, talks about uh, despicable conduct by the defendant. And so, you know, what they're going to have to look at is how despicable was Johnson & Johnson. J&J says the process is prejudicial because the new jury won't hear all the evidence from the first trial. It will simply be told that the company has already been found responsible for the woman's illness. Is that a problem for J&J? Certainly it is, Um, and it will be a ground for their appeal. And usually most punitive damages awards are reduced either by the trial judge or by the uh, court of appeals, that they will knock it down, but won't necessarily get rid of it completely. So uh, this would be one basis for Johnson & Johnson to appeal. But if there is an award of punitive damages here, it certainly gives the plaintiff leverage to try to negotiate some type of resolution because 
you're rolling the dice when you go to the Court of Appeals. You never know if the Court of Appeals might say, well, this is a company that made over $15 billion last year in earnings, and therefore a couple hundred million dollars is enough to punish them. Peter, I wonder, as I mentioned, the jury did not find that Colgate had acted with malice, so they're off the hook for punitives, and deadlocked as to J&J. Colgate stopped selling talc-based products in 1995, but J&J continues to use talc. Could that have had any part in the jury's decision? Oh, it certainly could. And, of course, the plaintiffs are going to try to argue that, or the plaintiff is going to try to argue that, uh, in this case, Johnson & Johnson is ignoring uh, scientific evidence and findings in other cases that they are liable. Now, they haven't been found liable in every case. Uh, Johnson & Johnson hasn't been found liable in every case that's gone to trial. But I think what is likely to happen is they're going to present at least some of their scientific evidence again and then say, look, Johnson & Johnson is ignoring a real threat here, uh, unlike Colgate, and therefore um, hold them responsible and send a message. And that's what punitive damages are. It's designed to punish the defendant. And so it's it's not a criminal finding, but it has some of the overtones of a criminal finding saying you simply ignored what you should have been doing, which is protect the safety of consumers of your products. So J&J is still facing more than 14,000 claims over its talc products. But as you mentioned, the record has been mixed. It's won some, lost some, settled some. Does that make it more difficult for the company to decide what to do going forward, whether to have a universal settlement of sorts? Uh, Certainly it does. I mean, the, the, the best thing for Johnson & Johnson would be to come up with a way to get all of these cases settled. But you know, that, that could run into certainly into the hundreds of millions and maybe into the billions of dollars. And so they may decide to you know, keep fighting and hope they can build up enough of a record where they get wins in trials that it will discourage at least some of the plaintiffs. But if you hear of about a major punitive damages award in a case, then you know the plaintiff's lawyers are going to swarm and uh, think, well, maybe I can get a slice of that exact same pie. And so it's not going to be easy for Johnson & Johnson to get out of all these cases. I mean, over 10,000 cases means that's spread across the country. That's not an easy way to come up with a settlement. And uh, they do gain a little bit of an advantage because 11,000 of the cases are filed in federal courts, but they've been consolidated for uh, pretrial information exchanges, a slight advantage, I guess. <laughs> that, you know, it, it, by, by bringing the cases together, it certainly uh, it lets Johnson & Johnson um, deal with them as one. But, you know, w- once they're brought together, this is where Johnson & Johnson can start to look for some type of global settlement. But you know, they've got to figure out what that dollar figure is, and that's not going to be easy to figure out. All right. Thank you so much, as always, Peter. That's Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State University Law School. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.